how do we do better, right? How do we improve the way that we're doing detections, the way we're doing response, the way we're being more proactive? You know, what can we add to change this this seemingly constant narrative of that there was this breach, there was this incident? What are we doing to make it so that we're resolving those things before they have these tremendous impacts? Welcome to Mindset. I'm your host, Bridget Bell. And I'm your host, Katia Murray. In this episode, we discuss cybersecurity technology, core challenges, and zero trust. We also get into the presidential executive order, cyber attacks in the news, and the importance of complex cyber environments. Having just wrapped up Cyber Awareness Month, this conversation was a great opportunity to talk through timely issues. So let's get started with Megan Good. Director of Linus's Cyber Accelerator. Welcome to Mindset. Today we're speaking with Megan Good, Director of Lidos's Cyber Accelerator. In today's episode, we'll focus on cybersecurity technologies, which is a massive topic to take on in a 30-minute podcast. So let's start very high level with what you're seeing as far as core challenges. What would you define as major challenges for cyber technology today? And how have those changed in recent months or years? So I think broadly in the market, there are a lot of different cyber challenges, right? From a security perspective, you're definitely looking at environments that are increasingly more heterogeneous, right? There's lots of different kinds of IT in our environment. There's there's different kinds of servers, different kinds of endpoints. There's different kinds of ways that we're processing information and that we're using it. Different users in that environment who have different kind of access levels. And all of that ties into a larger cybersecurity challenge. Um, from a technology perspective, all of those technologies then have to talk to each other. They have to be communicating. You have to be able to audit them from a security side and really understand what's happening there. And on top of that, to make sure that you're getting all the um, the right kind of protections for the data that's within those environments, you have to be able to do some sort of analytics across that data to make better decisions about what gets secured, what gets protected, and when, and then what your responses are when those things don't come true. So it's a big data challenge. It's a lot of complex devices all put together. And then on top of that, I think there is this evolving threat landscape going on about those who want to get access to that data. And more and more, what we've seen over time is that those threats are increasingly more sophisticated. They're taking advantage of vulnerabilities within that environment. And then from there, they're able to leverage that because most of our environments today are set up so where once you're in, once you're authenticated in some way into the environment or you have a a kind of trusted presence, you can then do all sorts of things Within those environments, you can pivot. You can do. You can laterally move into into another area that you might be more interested in, and find other data and wreak other kinds of havoc <laughs> that you want to do. And so, from a technology perspective, we want to be able to limit that. We want to be able to really be aware of what users are doing within the environment, and then want to make sure that we're taking the right kind of actions against it. 
Megan, it seems like nearly every day there's a new report of a data breach or ransomware attack. Is this just increased media attention or has there been an influx of cyber attacks recently? I'd say it's a little bit of both. I think there certainly is increased media attention that we've seen over time because the headlines prove it themselves, right? Um, just about every day, just about every week, there's something else that's more significant that, that we're discovering. Now, over time, I'm, I'm not sure that that means that there's been an influx in cyber attacks or if it's something that we're more aware of. I think on the one hand, you could say that there are more because there's more attack capabilities out there that are available. So if you had the right intent and that's what you wanted to do against a particular environment, you now have tools available to you that are open source and could then you know, use that for some initial access to perform some sort of kind of attack. Like ransomware, for instance, we're seeing a, you know, an evolution of that capability where it's ransomware as a service it's seeming, right? And those capabilities are available for folks who want to do those kinds of attacks. Um, but yet at the same time, I think we're we're getting better in a response capability of being able to connect the dots of sharing information um, between different kind of defender organizations of really upping our game in that space as well so that we're able to better detect these kinds of incidents. But all in all, I think it's something where no matter what, it's a growing emphasis. Um, and over the course of my career, when I tell somebody that we work in cybersecurity, you often hear them say, well, that's really important. You know, that's something that we need now. And I, I think in the beginning, that was never the case, right? Where people wouldn't have found my job interesting. And then now they do because it is in the media, there is this influx of it could happen to lots of different organizations and that it, it affects the whole range of industries, of critical infrastructure, of governments. Everybody is feeling this cybersecurity set of challenges that we were just discussing. And with that, what do you think we can learn from these news stories? So I think from these news stories, what we can really learn, there's a couple points here. So first, I think it's a, a there's a an instinct of shaming the organization that comes across in these news stories that they didn't do something right um, and that something went wrong and it was an egregious mistake that led to this incident and. Oftentimes, I don't think that's true. I think there's there's a combination of, of errors that may have happened, but there's also things from a, a more persistent kind of adversary trying to get into an environment to, you know, it was an outmatched capability to the, the kinds of systems that were there. I think secondly, from all of these news stories, what we hear is that I think it matters to protect the kind of data that um, an organization is using and has stored within their environments. And that means that they, they really do need to raise the bar on how they're protecting that information, how they're protecting their systems and their environments. I think that level of importance and really that presence of it in our, in our news headlines means that it matters, right? And it means that we have to take actions. Um, and I think from the third side, from a technologist perspective and someone who's been in this industry, you know, for nearly 20 years, it's a lot about how do we do better, right? How do we improve the way that we're doing detections, the way we're doing response, the way we're being more proactive? You know, what can we add to change this this seemingly constant narrative of that there was this breach, there was this incident. What are we doing to make it so that we're resolving those things before they have these tremendous impacts? 
So speaking of news related to cyber, we can't talk about cybersecurity without also talking about President Biden's executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity. It's been almost six months. How has this changed the cybersecurity industry? Well, that's a good point. And I I really think that what the Biden administration has done with the executive order is is taking that step to raise the bar on what cybersecurity needs to look like across the federal government and then using their buying power to make it across the industry um, of those who are service providers to the government, of those who are actually providing technologies that are then integrated into government systems and networks as well. With this, I, I think the industry response has been largely very positive about the executive order in that it's showing this path to change and innovation and being able to pull in technologies that that should be commonplace that help us move to the trends that that we're seeing across the market like uh, I mean, zero trust was mentioned in there about 11 times, our zero trust expert would say. And then from there, um, there's also things like, you know, things around identity, things around moving to the cloud, about securing our software, which is often what all introduces those vulnerabilities that get taken advantage of in these larger incidents. So all in all, I, I think it's something very positive for the government to take this step. From a customer requirements perspective, I think they're they're then responding to needing to address the kind of requirements that are within the executive order. And we're starting to see that flow through in a lot of conversations and discussions um, as we move forward through this time period. Another trend we are seeing in cybersecurity, and you actually just mentioned it, is zero trust. Help our listeners understand this philosophy. Sure. Zero trust, I think the first time you hear it, uh, it definitely makes you wonder what's going on there. It's uh, And it's one that's touted often. But effectively, it's where you're starting to take more granular control over what's allowed within your environment, where you're not trusting that user once they're already within within your environment's bounds. Um, often that's the, the kind of castle and moat look at, uh, at a network where you build you fortify the walls around all the data and all the endpoints inside. And then once you're inside, you can do what what you want. With Zero Trust, it's really the shift to every interaction between a user, a device, um, data that they're trying to access or some other resource, you're checking if it makes sense for that combination to occur. And so with that, there's, there's a lot of data that you need to make those decisions. And there's a lot of computing power that you need to make those decisions really quickly. So that it doesn't impact the legitimate usage of those systems. There's always this balance in cybersecurity engineering of where you want to be putting security measures in place, but at the same time, these systems just have to work. They have to work for the purpose that they were there for. And I think with Zero Trust, it's getting those combined in a way through a set of kind of policies and decisions uh, that then make it so that you can ensure that that balance is there, but there's a big emphasis on security. 
And I think the promise of zero trust for all of us from a cyber perspective is that it cuts down on what we call lateral movement. So of being able to get into one particular device within an environment that might not be as well protected or that might have extra vulnerabilities in them than something else, you know, the weak link, right? And then be able to maneuver to things that are of higher interest to you to actually capture data that you couldn't have seen from that initial device. And zero trust is meant to to really limit, minimize, or actually make impossible that lateral movement. Um, it also questions a, around persistence, which is another capability that from an attacker perspective, you wanna be able to stay in an environment in a hidden way. With Zero Trust, we're, we're looking to make sure that as that particular actor is within that environment, we can see more of it. We're making more decisions about what they're able to do, which limits their, their capability to persist in those environments. So there's a lot of promise around Zero Trust. I think one of the challenges is it, it becomes... Um, somewhat of a marketing term or a term of art at this point. And so there's there's a lot of products that would go into a particular architecture, so a zero trust architecture. And it's become a challenge of what combination of those products, as well as what combination of those policies and those rules and the kind of data that you need to make all of that happen, what really works for an organization. And we're finding a lot of organizations coming to us to talk about what their readiness is going to be for Zero Trust and of helping them progress through the kinds of systems that they have to have in place to get there. So what they need to understand about the identities within their environment, about the kinds of data resources that those identities might be accessing, the kinds of devices, uh, what the configurations of all of those need to look like, and how they can just slowly build to creating this zero trust environment. It's a lot about transformation and transition, not a rip and replace of that castle moat. So if you thought about it as a home renovation project, not a complete rebuild, but you're trying to use the pieces that have worked, you're adding in some new capabilities over time. And in the end, you're creating something that's more fortified from the inside out, not from the outside in. Excellent. And you mentioned um, a large amount of data that has to be analyzed and resources that have to be checked over time to implement Zero Trust. How do you think artificial intelligence or machine learning comes into play there? Well, I think artificial intelligence and machine learning is absolutely critical in that case uh, because it's about the speed of making those decisions. It's also a lot about not just the decision that Megan should be able to use this laptop to access this website and to get this kind of data in one individual case. It also could be how that spans across an organization. Should multiple folks from different areas be able to access this at one time? You know, what is the, the overall trend? And that's so much that has to happen so quickly that it really can't be done on an individual basis. It can't really be done with a human in the loop. Uh, we're getting to a point where that has to be powered by something that is learning over time about the environment and by something that can continue to react faster than a human enabled system could. 
a lot of our defensive systems today are really rule-based. And a number of our research and development efforts is, okay, so with those rules comes inherent bias. Like I know Ron Kiesing has discussed on, on past efforts about trusted AI ML. So what we're looking is how the combination of how we can use machine learning to look at those rule sets and really evaluate where there are actual gaps in the rules that something like a machine learning powered capability can actually identify. So that's really interesting. And it sounds like there's implications even more broadly than just within zero trust. So what about AI with cyber as a whole? So I think there's a lot of promise about applying machine learning to cyber use cases. For us, we're looking at um, obviously the detection challenge um, and how we can use machine learning to enhance our, our detection capabilities, which really is very similar of how it would be used in that zero trust case, how you're detecting by some combination um, in those policies of, of a larger event that might be occurring. So I think we're also looking at how machine learning can help us with our defensive systems and really testing the efficacy of those defensive systems. A lot of them today, whether it's at a perimeter, it, even at an endpoint or, or at any point in between with um, the layers of security that we put within environments, uh, we're seeing that it's a lot rule-based, right? So those systems are fed by a set of rules that are human-generated based on threat intelligence that we have or, or different network policies and settings, configuration settings, compliance-driven needs that, that we've implemented. Now, the challenge there is that we can start to use machine learning to identify the gaps in those rules. Rules inevitably have some form of bias and they, they mean that there are some loopholes in them and we can use machine learning to start to figure out what some of those loopholes are and then enhance our detection based on that. Um, and so we're, we're exploring a lot of research in that area and see a lot of promise in the capability of using machine learning to identify those gaps in advance so that we're enhancing our detections faster. Switching topics somewhat, um, I've heard you talk about the importance of complex environments or even weird environments. Why is that so important? And how can we keep up with these ever-changing landscapes? Right. Well, I certainly have said my share of let's keep environments weird. Um, and before, Bridget, you know, we talked a lot about it. Of there's, there's some security and obscurity as well. If your environment looks strange, when someone tries to scan it, they don't quite see what is really there. And um, there's a little bit of this hall of mirrors effect there that we're looking for. I think that is important for me in that, you know, we've talked about there's so many vulnerabilities in our environments and they're so complex already that by adding another layer of complexity, maybe it makes it more difficult to defend. Um, I would contend that if you're adding that extra complexity, you're making it harder to find where the critical data actually lives and what those assets really look like. And so what we're really looking to do is figure out ways that from a defender perspective, you can employ that kind of strategy. You can orchestrate the creation of these weird environments, but yet still make it so that they're, they're a protective kind of capability and keep 
adversaries busy within your environments against targets that they think are interesting, but that are actually not things that are affecting critical assets. Um, so a lot of this has fallen under terms in the past, like honeypots or decoy technologies, or could be classed as cyber deception capabilities. But I think in this world where we have a lot of you know software-defined capabilities, software-defined networking, we can really spin up these kind of environments that are very protective and make it so that it imposes costs to get to the real the real data, the real devices, and the real capabilities within an environment. Uh, so that's my, my keep it weird. I think it is one of where <laughs> it has to be done at scale. It has to be done intentionally. It has to be done with all the capabilities to automate it and to orchestrate it to make it something that's even feasible within environments. But it's one where we need to drive towards that. So our environments already are weird and complex. So let's use our weird complexity to our advantage um, to really help with defense. And then the other benefit of, of those weird technologies being out there is then that we have uh, the capability to detect kinds of activity that are happening against those, which would only be caused by someone who's not already within the environment or who is not somebody that uh, an identity that we know and trust. And in, in our zero trust world, if you looked at that, we would know what that identity was. We would know what kind of data they were trying to access. And we would have more of a chance to make those decisions within that environment and use it for kind of threat hunting where you're you're trying to figure out what sorts of threats are in your environment. And then you'd be able to action with with more confidence about what's going on in your own environment. And to bring that full circle, I'm sure you could use AI in that threat hunting so that it all comes back to everything you've already talked about. Well, certainly, I think there's a machine learning opportunity there of what kinds of environments give us the right kinds of information and how do we learn over time to make those environments more useful and practical. Um, and so there's a machine learning challenge and problem there, too. So, Megan, moving away from uh, weird machines and keeping it weird, what do you think the challenge are surrounding cyber physical systems? So I think there's a lot with cyber physical systems um, and for those out there, cyber physical systems are really those that can be accessed using, you know, communications, using connectivity, just like our standard IT, um, like laptops and computers and cell phones. But with cyber physical systems, they create an impact in our world as well. So you can think of things like medical devices or, um, you know, for us, uh, things that, that are kind of security scanning kinds of products. And then there's also, you know, industrial control systems, things that control utilities and energy and, and those sorts of critical infrastructure pieces, as well as things from a, a defense perspective, like weapon systems and platforms. Those are all things that we would class as cyber physical systems these days because they really are still connected. Um, and I think that's the challenge around cyber physical systems is that a lot of them have been built over the years without 
thinking that they were going to be connected to the internet. So we have this legacy challenge of it's things that weren't designed to operate in the world as we know it today. And then there are those ones that are operating in the world as we know it today, but maybe not from a security perspective how they were designed, right? So there are vulnerabilities within the kinds of embedded software and firmware and hardware that exist within those systems. So I, I think that challenge is one that there's really a lot of layers of potential vulnerabilities, just like there are within our, our IT environments. But with them, they, they have more of an impact when they can be exploited, right? And how would you think the challenge, I think, for us or for industry that doesn't control those systems, how do we help them protect themselves better? From an industry perspective, from a technology, you know, vendor sort of perspective, I think we're going to start to see a lot more being addressed at that market and of solutions that are really looking at that convergence. I think there are a number of different products and capabilities that are already available there, but I think we'll see increasing sophistication of those over time too. I'm sure more of those will include the kinds of themes that we've already talked about around zero trust kinds of capabilities, about machine learning, about better analytics, about better automation and orchestration of of some of those both detection and response actions within those environments. But that really is an area that it, it didn't need to exist when those a lot of those systems were built or put into place, but it needs to exist now for them to operate in, in the current environment, in the current world. It goes back to what you were saying earlier of when you started your career, people weren't quite as interested. And now when you say that you're in cybersecurity, it's that's very important and we need more of this out there. So I think those physical systems, they had no idea that they were going to be interconnected and need the type of security that we, we now know is, is so vital. I think over the course of my career too, what's, what's pretty interesting are the folks that I've worked with from a cybersecurity perspective often have a basis in some of those legacy capabilities. And they were the ones who had to figure out the security that wrapped around it. Um, and then now I think we have a lot of folks who have you know, cybersecurity training and background who are coming into these career fields, you know, through college, through other sorts of training and upskilling kinds of programs. Um, and now it's a matter of how we are applying their skills to some of, with some of those folks who have that kind of legacy knowledge of, of these systems. And it's this giant collaboration that has to happen and almost mind meld um, from lots of different perspectives. I think with that, we're, we're standing on this precipice of, of a lot of innovation that's going to come in so many different ways, from very small changes of, of how we interpret data to see if there's particular threat activity occurring within a particular environment, to some of those more macro challenges of how's that happening across a larger enterprise environment to then even these cyber physical challenges that that we're seeing across lots of critical infrastructure industries. And then what are the cybersecurity implications? What are the technology needs to really drive all of that and protect those, uh, those systems in the future. We're on the edge of a lot of things happening here, and they already are. It's just a matter of time where more and more is coming um, 
But I would say in this market, you know, there's there's a need for technologies, there's a need for change, and it's an evolving threat landscape, which means it's an evolving innovation landscape, so that we're actually countering those threats um, and that we're staying ahead. Sounds like a lot of exciting things to come. More to come, for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Megan. Um, This has been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our audience. If you like this episode, please share with your colleagues and visit lidos.com forward slash mindset.